exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. Welcome to Friday Night Insight. I'm your host, Mike Hogan. Tonight we'll be talking to Conrad Gelke. He's the director of the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory here at Michigan State. He's going to tell us what the cyclotron is, and he's going to talk to us about the funding that the cyclotron just received. We'll also be talking to Arden Bennett. He's the director of the National Science Foundation. Also, we'll be talking to Steve Schramm, as well as being the director of Michigan Public Media. He's also an MSU alumnus. He's going to talk to us about the differences between public and commercial radio, and he's going to talk to us about HD radio. We've got all that coming, but right now, here's your Impact News Update with Alex Ruciano. This is MSU Today on 89FM The Impact, Campus Radio from Michigan State University, WDBM East Lansing, and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. The National Science Foundation has awarded the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory at Michigan State University more than $100 million to fund operations through 2011, highlighting the lab's status as a world-leading nuclear science facility. Conrad Gelpke is Cyclotron Lab Director and University Distinguished Professor at MSU. He joins us now on MSU Today and begins by telling us what the National Superconducting Cyclotron Lab is. Uh, well, we are a laboratory for basic nuclear physics research. The fact that we are using superconducting cyclotrons is a technology uh, which was invented some 20 years ago, which was very cost-effective to achieve some of the science goals which we wanted to accomplish. Superconducting cyclotrons are accelerators which accelerate particles to high speed, in our case to roughly half the speed of light, which is needed to initiate the nuclear reactions uh, which we need to study and which we also use to produce isotopes which are very short-lived, so short-lived that they normally cannot be found on Earth. All right, before we go a little further into that, let's talk about the recent news where the director of the National Science Foundation was here to award your lab another $100 million. Talk a little bit about that, please. Yes, that is, of course, very important for us because uh, without money we can't run the laboratory. The fact that we are getting a, a substantial award of $100 million over five years means we will be able to do cutting-edge and world-class research for another five years at, at the very least. It, uh, it is a testament to the fact that uh, our faculty are first class, uh, that our technical staff is outstanding, and that the laboratory is viewed as one of the premier facilities in the country to do rare isotope research. And that is actually acknowledged uh, by the National Science Foundation. We're very proud of it, and we're, of course, very happy to get this award. And what makes us the best in the world at this? It's the people. Uh, you need good people, otherwise you can't move, and you, of course, need also a certain amount of organizational discipline, and uh, uh, you also have to have some good technologies and some good uh, ideas how to move the science forward, and I think we have a combination of all of it here, and that makes the laboratory special. A lot of people have heard about the lab through the RIA project, Rare, I rare Isotope Accelerator <coughs> Project, that was 
you know, bubbling for a long time seems to have gone away, but where are we with that? Is it still a viable project? Uh, RIA, as it uh, was originally conceived, was uh, actually uh, sort of terminated by the Department of Energy, according to a congressional testimony, and it's not clear whether it ever will be built. There may be some other facilities which could be built. So our current uh, planning is uh, inf uh, that we have to carry on the science. We have to de develop alternative new plans, how to maintain our cutting-edge and world leadership position. And we are just about to finish uh, a major document which outline, uh, out, outlines our major ideas, how we want to carry the science forward. It will not be the rare isotope accelerator, which uh, right now uh, seems to be too expensive. We have a scaled-down project, which is very attractive uh, and which uh, I think will still be one of the best facilities in the world if it gets built. We hear a lot about the automobile business is not in a cycle this time. Michigan needs to reinvent its economy. How does the lab fit into that moving Michigan forward into more of the knowledge economy or whatever you want to call it? Well, we are for basic research. In that sense, we are not really a producer of applied gadgets. However, uh, having said that, a laboratory like ours always attracts the brightest and the best people in the world who always have some other ideas. We have some of the most gifted teachers. We train some of the brightest students. Uh, we also have technical spin-offs once in a while, although that's not the main purpose why uh, we do our research. But uh, uh, the laboratory, for example, has built a number of uh, machines uh, which are now used for treating cancer patients uh, in the United States and also overseas. And would you talk please about the impact the lab has on the just international science community? Yes, we are a national, actually uh, we're, we're the premier rare isotope user facility in the United States. Let me explain what that means. It means that anybody who has a bright idea can write a proposal to the laboratory to do research here. Actually, our faculty are just uh, like any other user abroad. If they want to use our machine for their research, they have to go through the same process and the same peer-reviewed evaluation, uh, which is done by an external committee of experts. So we, we bring in some international advisors who are sort of the top of the crop, if you want to say it like this, and they come up uh, with a ranked order of which experiments should go forward. So in, in that sense, we are part of the fabric of the international science community. Uh, of course, the international people who are coming here, only a, a, moder a modest fraction of the scientists are coming here. Most people who come here to do their research are from the United States. The National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory is on the campus of MSU, so I imagine you have students involved a lot in the lab. And is that undergrads all the way up to PhDs? Yes, uh, we're actually very proud of this, uh, and it is uh, a very unique situation for a major laboratory to be housed on a university campus. That gives us the opportunity to have a nearly unique and ideal synergy between research and education. The students can go to classes, and an hour later they're back at the laboratory doing hands-on research. They really get the best training you can think of and that of course makes us uh, very special and also very enthusiastic about the work we're doing. Uh, the laboratory has about a hundred students on its payroll at any time which again is, is very unique. We are the largest campus-based nuclear physics facility in the country. 
We're training about 10% of all nuclear physics PhDs, and uh, we also are ranked uh, number two behind MIT, which is not a bad spot to be at uh, uh, in, in graduate education in, in nuclear physics. Uh, about half of our students are graduate students, and the other half is undergraduate students. So the, gra the graduate students, of course, are working on their, on their thesis research. The undergraduate students we incorporate into the laboratory in various functions. So they do real work in a, in a research laboratory. Some do research, some do technology, some do assembly, some do design, others do computing, computer maintenance. So we train a lot of students uh, in, in, the, in, in a real-world experience, uh, uh, and I think that is a very useful thing to do. How about K through 12 students? Do they ever get a chance to interact with the lab? Yes, uh, there are a number of our faculty are going out to high schools and uh, volunteer, volunteer work, talk about the cyclotron. We give tours to uh, school children. Uh, typically, of the order of 2,000 people come through the laboratory every year, every year in organized tours, sort of small groups, and uh, they get uh, uh, a small video to look at and they can see what, how research is done. Uh, we also participate in a number of university activities to reach out to, to students, middle school and, and high school students, uh, to attract them into the sciences. And also we have summer internships, so uh, that, that's what a typical university does, and we're part of that fabric. This is MSU Today, and we're visiting with Dr. Conrad Gelbke of MSU's National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. And let's get back to a little bit about what actually goes on here. Try to describe to us lay people a little bit about what the superconducting is, what goes on at the lab, and, and what do you hope to find out. Okay. Now, superconducting means it's a, it's a technology. Uh, if one wants to build particle accelerators, one has to have gadgets which bring the particles up to very high speed. In our case, uh, superconducting means that uh, we build machines, cyclotrons, uh, which bring the particles up to high energies, which have to contain the particles in magnetic fields. And we create these magnetic fields with huge electromagnets, which one could do with normal copper wires, and these would be extremely cumbersome and, and, and very heavy devices. If one goes with modern technology, superconducting wires, uh, you can make the magnets much smaller. You save a lot of money. They're not, not as clumsy, and, and they're very elegant and, and inexpensive to build. So that is why we are called a superconducting cyclotron laboratory. The research which we're doing addresses uh, mainly uh, two, two large themes in science. One is, uh, what is the origin of the elements uh, we're made of? Uh, where, where is the oxygen, the hydrogen, the carbon, the nitrogen, and the iron and the gold made in the universe, uh, which then was uh, coalescing into our solar system? We have some crude ideas, uh, but the details aren't really known. And the reason why they're not known is we know that stars make these elements as they are sort of evolving. They, 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 they do nuclear physics in their interiors. But the nuclear physics goes through steps uh, of isotopes or particular forms of elements which are so short-lived that we don't have them on Earth. And if we want to understand what happens inside a star, we have to know those properties of, of those intermediate nuclei. We have the technology and the means to produce some of them, not all. We would need a better machine uh, to do all of them. And by studying them, we put uh, a solid foundation on any theoretical efforts to try to, uh, to understand what's happening out in the cosmos. 
Now, that's very important, for example, uh, if we look at the broad context of space exploration. We're building space-based telescopes. We can study what are the elemental compositions in distant stars. And if we want to make sense of that, we have to understand how those stars evolve and how they come about. And so, so we are providing the uh, nuclear physics underpinning uh, for, for anybody who wants to understand uh, what these observations, for example, with a Hubble telescope mean and how we would interpret them. Now, apart from that, there is a, a more broader, uh, deeper, non-applied science question, namely, uh, how do we understand the forces which make a nucleus and, and keep it together? Um, we had in the past access to a few stable isotopes and, and their neighbors. But we know that there are many, many more isotopes which are uh, only short-lived, which uh, have very unusual compositions and also very unusual shapes and structures. And uh, part of the basic nuclear physics mission of the laboratory is to produce some of these very short-lived isotopes, uh, uh, isolate them, bring them to an experiment, and study the properties. For example, uh, we've recently uh, measured the properties of a particular calcium isotope, which is very short-lived. It only lives for about a tenth of a second. And we measured its weight, its mass, uh, to an extremely high precision. If I would compare the precision uh, to measuring the weight of a truck, it was, would be like uh, we would measure the weight of a truck to a degree of precision that we would know whether, dri whether the driver left the $10 bill inside the truck or not. And that had to be done basically uh, within uh, a tenth of a second because the truck would be gone after a tenth of a second and this isotope was gone in, in a tenth of a second. Just to give you an example of, of, the, of the technologies we're doing here. Is there anything important I've left out or, or just a final thought you'd like to leave people with about NSCL if there was one thing or two? Well, the one thing which I always like to stress is uh, the NSCL is really a set of people. Uh, who are all working extremely well together. Uh, I think the atmosphere is extremely enthusiastic and collegial, and uh, uh, we just have an outstanding set of people, high-quality researchers, high-quality technologists and technicians, and they all work very focused as a team, and that what, that's really what makes the laboratory so special. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to be here on campus on, on such a special place. Last question, sir. I mean, just it's kind of big, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. I mean, what is sort of the state of science right now? I mean, particularly, is the United States still kind of leading the charge in all the important research we need to do? Just how do you feel, and, and then maybe even how it filters down into schools, and are we learning what we need to learn about science? Well, I'm, I'm obviously a, a scientist and enthusiastic about science. The United States is still one of the best countries to do science. I think... Uh, uh, the science we're doing is very expensive and the priority setting process is always very complicated and we wish there would be more investments. But in the net, I think what, what is really important uh, that we have universities like Michigan State University or like MIT or Columbia University to get, or, or Yale or Princeton who, who are really pushing the scientific frontier and who let the scientists really develop their ideas to the best of their abilities and, and pursue them. That is actually very special, that we don't have a lot of uh, hindrances, uh, hindrances to, to pursue our research. And so I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about it. Obviously, uh, 
science at other countries is also growing. The international competition is becoming a very serious issue for us. Uh, for example, our laboratory will stay at the cutting edge probably for another five to ten years, but the competition abroad is investing huge amounts of, of resources and money into the research we're doing. And unless we are uh, building a major new capability on our campus, we will fall behind. So while we're doing very well now, uh, we have to also think about what we should do ten years down the road, and that's one of the important things we we're right now addressing. I think the next five years are great, but we have to take also a longer-term perspective, and uh, that has to sort itself out over the next year or so. That's Conrad Gelpke, director of MSU's National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. For much more on the web, visit www.nscl.msu.edu. And this is WDBM East Lansing Impact Radio from the campus of Michigan State University and its Spartan Podcast on the web at spartanpodcast.com. For more MSU Today, visit us on the web at msutoday.com. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today, and our guest is Dr. Arden Bement, Director of the National Science Foundation. Uh, sir, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Start off by telling us a little bit about NSF. What's the mission? What's going on there these days? Russ, uh, the National Science Foundation is a government uh, foundation founded uh, in 1952 primarily to s provide grants to universities and colleges to support fundamental research. What is the state of science in the U.S. these days? I know that's kind of a large question, but where are we scientifically? I think we can say that uh, we still maintain our leadership in the world. Uh, we had a clean sweep of Nobel Prizes this year, which is a testimony to that fact. Through the uh, President's announcement of his American Competitiveness Initiative, there is an expectation of a doubling of the NSF budget over the next 10 years which will give us more resources to fund more research grants over that period of time. Now you're visiting MSU, among other reasons, to announce some funding from you for our National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. Talk about, a bit about that announcement today and, and how NSF feels about the work going on at NSCL. Uh, we're very excited about the work at NSCL. It's been a premier laboratory. It's one of the leading facilities in neutron science. 
and is doing pathbreaking work in uh, linking neutron science with the um, uh, processes taking place in the universe. So we feel that our investment is very well placed here. What are some of the other things you've seen at MSU? Maybe talk about the state of science at Michigan State. Uh, the state of science is very great. I think uh, it's probably um, not as well recognized as it should be. But uh, I find that there's outstanding science going on uh, in almost every uh, field of science that we support, from the social behavioral sciences to bioscience to uh, engineering to math and physical science. So yeah, we're very well represented here on campus. At NSF, drawing K-12 through students into science and getting them interested, I think, is important. Can you talk about that initiative? Yes. We, uh, we put a lot of attention in uh, trying to attract uh, younger minds into science. We do that uh, by uh, supporting informal science, and what that means is media presentations and uh, science laboratories around the country. But also we're trying to get more discovery-based uh, learning and more inquiry-based learning into the classroom to uh, stimulate interest in science, and uh, we feel that will pay dividends over time. And what role then do the universities have in drawing the, the K-12 students into science? Now, the universities uh, play a vital role. Um, uh, through our math and science partnerships, the uh, universities, especially Michigan State University, uh, engages directly with with uh, the school districts and also with teachers in trying to uh, improve math and science education in the uh, in the schools. And in uh, my review of the program this morning, that's. It's really a successful program. The Promise program here at MSU is is, is probably uh, the best or one of the best in the country. What's your answer to somebody who wonders why should we as a society continue to make investments in basic science and research with so many other competing demands on the federal budget? I think uh, most economists would agree that uh, investment in science has uh, yielded about a 6% increase in uh, in um, GDP over a long period of time has been a major driver of our productivity gains over time as well. So there's a real return on that investment in terms of uh, economic benefit to society, job creation. But in addition to that, there's there's also a benefit in in um, uh, meeting the uh, the needs that the general public have for understanding the world about them, understanding um, uh, uh, critical processes that are taking place, and, and trying to get a handle on some of the critical needs having to do with energy sustainability, water sustainability, uh, the environment, and also uh, uh, predicting earthquakes and hurricanes. And there's also a quest for... Um, understanding uh, human values, how societies develop, uh, quality of life issues, and these are also supported by the National Science Foundation, this type of research. Anything important I've left out, sir, or just some, some final thoughts on NSF and or MSU? Well, we have a very good partnership between NSF and, S and MSU, and I think that partnership will only get stronger with, with time. 
the um, the foundation is still evolving. We're still trying to uh, stay close to the frontier, and the frontier is moving. So science is changing. Uh, the conduct of science is changing. Uh, it the uh, the tools that are now available allow us to do research at a higher level of complexity and to take on scientific problems that. Um, were grand challenges, our grand challenges, and begin to wrestle with them, and uh, all that will will create new knowledge that will be highly uh, invaluable to uh, to our society. That's Dr. Arden Bement, director of the National Science Foundation. For much more on the web about the foundation, nsf.gov is the place. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us on the web at msutoday.com. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that? Smoking. Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. When you get up in the morning and turn on the radio, you don't want to hear those other guys talking on your way to work, do you? You don't want to hear talking. You want to hear music. So here at The Impact, we are making you a promise. We're calling it the More Music Mornings 89-second play. We, The Impact, pledge that every weekday morning from 8 to 10 a.m., we will shut up and play music. We pledge that we won't talk for more than 89 seconds at a time, meaning more music all morning long. We pledge that every caller who requests a song between 8 and 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, will be entered to win a great Impact prize. And we pledge that in return for your listening to us, we will listen to you and play more music that you want to hear. So tune into the impact for more music mornings. Let us know what to play, and maybe you could win some cool stuff. Only here on 88.9 The Impact. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio from the campus of MSU, 89FM The Impact, and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. MSU Today is the program. As I mentioned, I'm Russ White, and we're happy to have really one of the fathers of Spartan Podcast and a passionate Green and White alum with us, Steve Schramm. Steve, welcome to MSU Today. Russ, thanks very much. It's great to be here today. And it's nice to be using the beautiful studios of your new home, Michigan Radio, which is a part of Michigan Public Media. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, what Michigan Public Media is. Michigan Public Media is the uh, umbrella name for the organizations that represent Michigan Radio, which is uh, your NPR news and talk station at 91.7 out of Ann Arbor, 91.1 in Flint, and 104.1 in Grand Rapids. We also have Michigan Television, the PBS station on Channel 28 out of uh, Flint, and also we have uh, two other smaller units, uh, Michigan Productions, which is our on-campus uh, video production unit, which captures lectures and special presentations. And we have a 24-7 cable channel called Michigan Channel, which is distributed by Comcast in Washtenaw County. Well, and talk a little bit about uh, that 
difference between a public radio setting and a commercial radio setting, as you talked about having been in both. Are there major differences, or is a lot of it the same thing? Well, I think you use the same basic set of uh, operating ideas from a business standpoint. Uh, There are certain things that have to happen from the revenue and expense side, which are common to any business, whether it be broadcasting or any other entity. But I think the things that are certainly unique in public uh, broadcasting and public radio is uh, certainly the the um, mission of service of public service, and that in, in this station particularly comes through with our news and information services, both the NPR offerings that we have nationally, and uh, also our our dedication to our news effort as well. We have a a local news uh, staff of five uh, individuals uh, for Michigan Radio. And, and we're offering comprehensive, thoughtful uh, analysis of news, not just quick uh, 10 and 15 second sound bites. And I think that is, uh, as, as a total offering, uh, that is the type of attraction that uh, our, our listeners have found very appealing over the course of time. So I think that's a key difference. You know, commercial radio, unless you're an all-news station, doesn't really regard or treat news information very seriously or at all with resources very much anymore. And if they do, it's only on a very surface level because that's that's what it has come down to in the age of consolidation. I think also that um, we have to manage uh, our business with a lot of different constituencies here. We have the constituency of being a university licensee. We have the... Uh, importance of making sure that uh, not only are we attracting uh, listeners to our product by offering a a good product that's compelling and uh, one that's unique, but we also want to be able to interest those listeners in becoming members of our station, which offer the financial support. And and in our operation and many other public radio operations across the country and public television as well, membership represents over 50% of the entire, uh, entire income that you're working with. So you have those uh, constituencies. And I think in in public broadcasting, radio and television, the listenership and the viewership takes a much more uh, serious uh, ownership of what you do and what what their interest is in what you do. So you get very specific feedback from listeners if you've said something or if you've put a news item on the air which they think is not – is not accurate or it goes against uh, the, the kilter of, of some type of uh, fair balance uh, coverage. So it is an interesting and passionate audience. And the way that you measure the passion, quite honestly, is not only how many uh, people you're able to serve on a uh, documented basis, but how many of those individuals elect to become further engaged by becoming members, by, by becoming financially interested in the station. So as director of Michigan Public Media, and now you are director, not interim director, you're yes. here for the long haul. What what are some of the challenges or some of the projects you're working on in the next several months or the foreseeable future? Well, we, we've uh, we've been – there's some projects that were already in progress when I arrived here. Uh, the largest, uh, you know, physical project we have going on is the expansion of our signal on uh, in Grand Rapids on the west coast of Michigan. And we have been, the last couple of years, uh, building a brand-new uh, tower – with uh, new transmission, uh, improved transmission capabilities in terms of uh, the coverage area. And we'll also launch the uh, debut of uh, HD radio for us on the west coast of Michigan. So we're, exp- we're going through our final sets of uh, testing and, uh, and uh, paperwork submissions to the FCC. 
Uh, very soon that will be done, and we will basically have uh, increased our power in that area fourfold. So we expect to be able to give a much more significant signal and coverage not only to our core Grand Rapids area, but even expanded areas as well. So I think that's a significant project for us from a coverage standpoint. From a product standpoint, we're always looking to um, examine the program lineup that we have now, whether they are local programs or programs from NPR or American uh, Public Media. Wherever our uh, program sources are, we're always looking at the mix and match of what makes the most sense in terms of uh, listener appeal. And I think uh, we have a new news director, Jerome Vaughn, who came to us from WDET about two months ago. And uh, Jerome, I think, will bring uh, additional energy and, and vigor to how we cover news in our area. We're very fortunate to have a Grand Rapids-based news reporter. We have a primary uh, Detroit market news reporter as well. And then we have our, uh, the rest of our staff, which is assignable to whatever geography where there might be breaking news, whether that be in Flint, where we have another uh, signal, of course, or Lansing for state capital coverage, or anywhere else in southeast or southern lower Michigan. Because... With the, with the benefit of three signals, both Grand Rapids and Flint and Ann Arbor, we do really consider ourselves the NPR news and talk station for southern lower Michigan. Steve, this is kind of a big question, but let's see where it goes. What is the state of, I guess, terrestrial broadcasting, we'll call it? Because as you and I were saying off the air, right. if we had been talking three or four years ago, the word iPod probably would not have even come up, and it's arguably now the biggest threat to terrestrial radio satellite radio is very much, I, I guess, not viable yet for certain. It could make right. it, it could not make it. That's very much up in the air. But would sure. you just talk about where we are and where we're going? Well, I, I have a, a lot of different personal opinions about the satellite radio issue. I think that um, without question, there are some users of satellite radio to find it to be very convenient because there's a wide variety of choices available, even inside of specific music genres, for example. There might be four or five different jazz channels, depending on your uh, your liking. The same is true for classical and other types of more contemporary music. So I think satellite radio probably does give a wide variety of listenership uh, a lot of choices to, to work with, which is fine. I think that um, it has also opened up the horizon on the kinds of different talk radio that is available, which is distributed in bits and pieces on terrestrial stations, but on satellite you might have an entire dedicated channel of one particular type of talk. So satellite has uh, brought those types of diversities. I think from a terrestrial broadcaster standpoint, and having been a terrestrial broadcaster all of my career, I guess I take uh, some exception to the fact that the FCC licensed satellite broadcasters effectively with 100 channels per market of ability to program to a market, and they also have a uh, creative loophole where they can, and they do in, in some of the larger markets, do uh, traffic and weather reports. So they've, in effect, uh, given two companies 100 channels of licenses in each market in the United States. And to me, that's uh, I don't know if that's in the best interest of, of the public overall. I think also that um, terrestrial broadcasters are certainly more challenged by the fact there's more competition out there. So we have to do things differently and, and continue to be uh, reinventing our opportunity. And the way that that has been forwarded in our industry on the terrestrial side is with the, de with the debut of HD, high-definition radio. And uh, that is still yet to catch on because uh, auto manufacturers haven't found uh, a, a compelling reason yet to uh, accelerate 
the installation of HD radios in all their automobiles. It's starting to come in in higher-end uh, brands such as uh, BMWs and what have you. But you've got to recognize that most automotive manufacturers have an alliance either with XM, as General Motors does, or Sirius, as Ford and Chrysler happen to. And they do have economic benefit in terms of being able to uh, benefit from the subscription price that someone pays for satellite radio. So they're slower to get excited about HD radio because there isn't a financial model for them there. So even though HD radio is certainly going to be a superior product from a technical standpoint, and I think from my own personal listening, that HD radio, if you were driving in your car and you have a a decent uh, audio system in your car, and not necessarily high-end, but a decent one, you're going to find the clarity and the definition of HD radio to be far superior to satellite. Satellite is a distribution system. It doesn't necessarily mean it is the highest end quality. To put 100 signals on one beam of satellite transmission, they have to squash it quite a bit in terms of audio range. So I think HD radio, once it has a chance to get out there and establish itself, if someone really appreciates the high-end value of the clarity of the signal, it, it will prove itself One of the things that I see on the horizon that's a challenge for satellite radio and certainly will be a challenge as as the media landscape continues to fractionalize is when uh, Wi-Fi becomes more apparent in cars and you can listen to wireless Internet in your car, in which case anybody who has a URL and is streaming will be able to be listened to from around the world. And that will put a whole new layer of competition and diversity and, and different voices into mix on what your media habit's going to be. But I think at the end of the day, Russ, you know, there's only so much time you can spend with all these media sources. You will still determine in your own personal habit maybe, you know, two, three, perhaps four places where you're going to spend your media time. And that probably won't change dramatically because you really can't, you know, you'll have a loyalty to two or three of these things. And that's where your interest will lie. It will always give you the option of now having many more alternate choices should you be tired of your core three or four. That's, I think, the biggest difference that I see in the future. Elaborate just a little bit more on HD radio and what it is, because I think a lot of American consumers are just or consumers are just now getting up with what HD TV is. Right. There are some differences, right? Like for one, I don't think HD radio is ever going to be required like the TV is, right, but just talk mandated. about what it is a little bit and why consumers should get excited. Well, it's high-definition radio, just like you have high-definition def- television. The difference is, as you mentioned, is the FCC has mandated that all television stations will convert to digital transmission uh, by uh, February of 2009. So uh, your analog TV set will either have to get an adapter box or you'll be buying a new television by February of 2009. And you will have improved uh, you know, technical quality of the, of the picture and the transmission will be in its purest digital state from the time that it is generated inside the TV studio all the way through its par- passes through the transmitter out onto the air. So uh, digital television is already on its way in terms of mandate. That's why you're seeing all the retail stores uh, offer you all these great deals, especially around big sporting events. They're trying to get as many sets circulated into the population ahead of the February 09 uh, cutoff so there isn't a great culture shock. But you watch in the next year or so, there'll even be more and more of that as that deadline is coming true. On on the radio side, there isn't a mandate that everyone has to uh, convert radios to digital. Um, whether that will come about or not, I haven't tracked enough of the legislation to see whether or not that's even being offered up in the near term. I think that uh, HD radio is um, 
is an advantage to the to the effect as we talked about earlier. It's it's going to give you some additional clarity from the main channel that you normally listen to. So if you listen to Michigan Radio at 91.7, we have an HD signal as well. And if you listen to that, you'll notice some some distinct differences that make it even uh, more clear to you or be better stereo or things of that nature. As far as uh, HD's potential, HD, as it gets uh, more circulated with more sophisticated receivers, allows a single station to have two, possibly three streams of program content. So it could be the programming you've always known from 91.7, and we could have two alternate programs, up to two alternate programs. At least right now, that's the way the technology seems to be playing out. And some stations in the larger markets are already doing that, offering an alternate view of their kind of programming, either a, uh, uh, as they say, a, a cousin version of the format that they do, or they, op- they operate with a format that's entirely different just because th- that is a need in the marketplace. So I think HD in its uh, embryonic stage is trying to emulate some of the satellite radio um, uh, variety of programming model. And it's going to be a while before that gets settled in because until it finds its way into the dashboard, it really won't have that uniform acceptance and awareness that everybody will clamor to have. Uh, I, I must have an HD radio. Right now there's so much focus on satellite radio. You see all the ads about howardstern.com and 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 the fact that you can listen to him for free for a, a trial coming up on Sirius. Uh, that's where the money is being spent. But let's remember right now the, the satellite radio model is not working I was gonna say, financially. Do you think they will – aren't there only maybe 15 million subscribers between the two? Right. Do you think they'll even make it? I realize it's just a guess, but that's certainly up in the air. We it can, is. It is. They may I, not even be around. XM, I think, has you know seven, seven and a half or eight right now, eight million subscribers because I was in D.C. a couple weeks ago, and they have a big banner on the side of their building, now seven million subscribers. But they have a lot of churn. They have people that get new cars where satellite is rolled into the deal for the first uh, 12 months of their lease, and then uh, because that's basically a 12-month free sampler, and then they don't have uh, renewals. So they have a lot of churn. They're having to try to introduce into the market as many possible devices where you can hear their radio, and that's that's very wise. But, you know, I don't know if everybody wants to continue to pay another tier, another layer of dollars for their entertainment, uh, you know, their entertainment use every month. Let's face it, at home you've got cell phone bills. Maybe you still have a landline bill. You certainly most likely have a cable bill. You probably have a high-speed bill. And uh, the question is, do you want to spend another 7 to $10 or $11 a month on a satellite radio bill? How many hours a day are you really using it? Especially if these jacks are coming where your iPod is going to be easily plugged into cars. Yes, so. yes, yes. So there's, there's so many ways that uh, the media landscape is being diversified in terms of delivery systems. And I guess the question is, you start putting a value, as you said, whether I'll take the time and just put my favorite music on an iPod and carry it with me wherever I go, or do I want to use the occasional use of the satellite radio system, uh, but I'm paying uh, a premium for it, or frankly, do I still find great value in my terrestrial radio station, which uh, is, is, uh, is answering a lot of needs on a local front, that you don't get from a music player, which is what an iPod is, and you really don't get it from satellite radio because those are all national services. They're not going to tell you likely 
what what your weather is like. They're not going to tell you what your local news is about if that's important to you. They may not have the the scores for the teams that you might be following locally. And so all that all that different local flavor, the things that make you unique to your community, those are lost on those national services or music players. Steve Schramm, since we're on Spartan Podcast and Impact Radio at MSU, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to reflect a little bit, being a Spartan alum as you are, back to your days of you know, WMSN and Dr. Steve Edwards and (laughs) Keener, and just talk a little bit about your formative years and how it helped you get where you are. I will tell you, I I knew I was going to Michigan State from the time I was a sophomore in high school. And in my junior year, I I attended Catholic Central in Detroit for high school, and in my junior year, we took a bus trip. We were going to the various universities, and I I signed up for the Michigan State tour. And uh, I... uh, I knew uh, academically that there was a program there that I would enjoy, the television and radio major. Actually, I started out as a political science major. Uh, the, the thought was, okay, I'm going to go be a lawyer. But uh, after about uh, three or four classes of the isms, you know, communism, socialism, whatever, it, it didn't appeal to me uh, over the long haul. And I went to what was my real passion from the outset. So I became a television radio major. From the time I... Uh, decided I was going to go to Michigan State. I, I took a tour in that high school year to, uh, to Michigan State Campus Radio, which was WMSN, in the student services building in the lower level, or the garden level of the building. And the gentleman who gave me the tour uh, was, was very nice. He was a student. And uh, at the end, he said, um, so what do you think? You going to come here to Michigan State? And I said, yes. And I said, and someday I'm going to run this place. And 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 I I didn't realize that those words uh, would uh, ring so true. But the person who gave me the tour was a, a gentleman by the name of Dave Logan, who has become uh, over the decades a, a professional friend of mine. Dave, actually, interestingly enough, was the first uh, vice president programmer of XM Satellite Radio when it decided to debut. But Dave had a very illustrious career and still does uh, in in broadcasting terrestrial radio as well. So Dave, and I talked to him recently, I said, you realize that that visit that day inspired me to come into uh, Michigan State Campus Radio. And from there, when I uh, got my uh, dorm assignment at Bailey Hall in Brody Complex, I put my bags down. I, I don't think I was in the dorm 20 minutes. I put my bags down and went over to WBRS in Ma Brody and said, how do I sign up? And uh, certainly that started. So my first couple of years were at Brody Radio, and I became the uh, manager of McDonald Hall Radio at WMCD. And then my senior year, I became the station manager of WMSN. And uh, all that time, I had the good fortune of working in commercial radio in Lansing at the same time. I worked uh, primarily at WVIC, and as as you mentioned, became uh, Dr. Steve Edwards, the good doc of rock from 6 to 10 at night. <laughs> so I, my, Michigan State, uh, my Michigan State heritage and, and connection means uh, very much to me. Uh, the, the, um, the closest friends I have in life are from my years at Michigan State. And the camaraderie and the fraternity that campus radio allowed me as an individual on campus allowed me to find a place for, for Steve Schramm at Michigan State because we recognize, we hear this all the time, boy, Michigan State is a very big campus. It's easy to get lost or you may not know what areas to navigate. And I've always uh, said this in any of the career talks I've done, you need to find something. You need to find an organization. You need to find some kind of volunteer effort. You need to find some type of 
other than an academic interest, you need to find something to do at Michigan State to become wired and to really appreciate the value of the university and all of its all the offerings that it has. And for me, that was Campus Radio. That was my fraternity, if you will. And those people who uh, were with me in that grouping uh, are still with me today. They are, as I said, the best friends that I have. And even though we aren't even in the same state for the most part, we do come together to celebrate the years that we enjoyed there. And they are the most uh, meaningful years of our life in terms of how they directed our career. And yet, as we were talking off the air, too, you're about as green and white as I know, but now working here at the University of Michigan for Michigan Radio, there, a, a lot of that competition is left in Breslin and Chrysler yes. and the big house in Spartan Stadium, right? Other than that, yes. it's much more of a, a collaborative Union, you're and it's, finding. And it's very refreshing, yeah. honestly. I, I really enjoy working for University of Michigan, I would tell you that. And I, as you said, I'm as Spartan as they come. My, I, my, my two sons are Michigan State graduates. My wife and I are state graduates. Our dog's name is Sparty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much more yeah. I can do. Um, so, but I, as I've told people, I said, you know, uh, I'm very, I'm very proud to be working for this university as well. And there is not, there, there is a wonderful collaboration that does exist, certainly on the uh, academic unit basis. And I think there is regard and respect for among each u- university for uh, what they do and and what they seem to excel at. And I will tell you here at at Michigan Radio, uh, Michigan State University is our largest client. And and we we thank them for that. That includes the, the Broad College of Business. That includes uh, Wharton Center and some occasional academic units, which are promoting some of their events because of the type of coverage that and listenership that we have. For example, on the west side of the state, where Michigan State has a lot of partisans, uh, that that messaging that we can provide with our service uh, is of great value to them. Steve, anything I've left out or just some final thoughts on sort of the state of broadcasting and where we're going? Well, I I think that uh, broadcasting is an interesting time because podcasts alone, your podcast, which is, is, you know, the Spartan podcast, which is now heard around the world. And it is amazing that these search engines, you know, uh, people will come across the different uh, versions of the Spartan podcast that have been done. And and the amount of downloads that have occurred is, is fascinating. So I, I think that the kind of uh, wonderful positive notoriety that's been built from a podcasting environment is a real positive. It has allowed, in my view, what has been a um, sty- – I guess there, there hasn't been as much growth in what we think are people who could be future broadcasters or communicators, electronic communicators. I think podcasting is reopening that door, and it's allowing uh, – you know, individuals and programs like yours, as well as others that you hear on podcasts to say, well, there are, there is talent that's still out there and we can still develop them to a larger audience than just the podcast audience if we know where to find them and and to develop those talents. So I, I think I'm excited about the fact that podcasting does exist and I don't see it as a real threat terrestrial broadcasting. I see it as a compliment and as a niche uh, way to communicate. I, I think that terrestrial broadcasting will, um, will we'll still be here and will always be here. It's a vital service. And for those who are not necessarily on the, on the, on the bleeding edge of uh, technology adaptation or, frankly, are, are comfortable with the traditional service that terrestrial broadcasting has supplied and still continues to supply in a quality way, that this will still be a useful resource, particularly 
public radio. I think public radio as a format nationally is now the number four format in the country. This is Arbitron's uh, information that was released not too long ago. And uh, beginning this fall in the survey that we are currently in, uh, for the first time when the survey results come out in the first quarter of next year, public radio stations will actually be listed by call letters along with their commercial peers, and that has never occurred before. Hmm. So I think people will begin to see from the media side the value of public radio, and I think it's uh, it's absolutely genuine. It's a it's a, a national treasure in so many ways. At wherever there is a public broadcasting station, both radio and television, and I'm proud to be part of it. Steve, thanks so much for visiting with us. Thank you, Russ. It's been a pleasure. Steve Schramm is director of Michigan Public Media here at the University of Michigan. And this has been MSU Today. I'm Russ White on Impact Radio from the campus of MSU, WDBM East Lansing, and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. For a lot more of the things that Steve and his colleagues work on, MichiganRadio.org is where you can go to find that out. And for more MSU Today... You can visit us at msutoday.com. Bozier on 88.9 The Impact. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. With your Impact Weekly News Recap, this is Alex Rusciano reporting on Friday, December 8th, 2006. The House Ethics Committee concluded that Republican leaders were negligent in protecting pages from ex-representative Mark Foley's improper advances. However, they did not break any rules. The committee reported that Republican lawmakers failed to protect young male pages from Foley's improper advances, concluding an investigation and a scandal that convulsed Congress and is a factor in the GOP's defeat in last month's elections. Foley, a Republican from Florida, hurriedly resigned his seat September 29th after the existence of computer messages that were sexually explicit were sent to teenage pages, and he quickly entered an alcoholic treatment program. This week, President Bush moved quickly to distance himself from the central recommendations of the Iraq study group, even as the panel's co-chairman opened an intensive lobbying effort to press President Bush to adopt most of the report. James A. Baker III, the Republican co-chairman, said the White House must not treat the report, quote, like a fruit salad, unquote, while Democratic co-chairman Lee H. Hamilton told Congress to abandon its, quote, extremely timid, unquote, approach to examining and looking after the Iraq war. However, President Bush, in his first extended comments on the study, appeared to push back against two of its most fundamental recommendations engaging in direct talks with Iran and Syria, and pulling American combat troops away from Iraq over the next 15 months. 
After a meeting in the White House, both Bush and Britain's Prime Minister Tony Blair addressed reporters and the Iraq Study Group's report, which called the war situation in Iraq quote grave and deteriorating. Although the president said he would give the report serious consideration, he said he doesn't intend to accept all 79 recommendations. Michigan State University President Lou Anna Simon today received a $70,000 pay raise, bringing her salary to $495,000, which falls in the mid-range of the Big Ten University presidents. The chairman of MSU's board of trustees called President Simon's job performance quote beyond outstanding. The vote to increase President Simon's pay was unanimous, and she is under contract until 2011. And with school teachers in Lansing and officials still finding no middle ground with the most recent contract settlements, more tension continues to rise. On Thursday, over 100 teachers formed picket lines at Eastern High School. The teachers' union, with its 1,200 members, also questioned recent spendings from board members as well as their student commitments. Current weather conditions right now are mostly cloudy, with a high of 24 degrees, but it feels like 11 degrees. Tonight it's going to be partly cloudy with a low of 20, and tomorrow mostly sunny with a high of 34 degrees. With your Friday Night Insight weekly news recap, this is Alex Rusciano reporting. Thanks for listening to this evening's exposure only on 88.9 The Impact.